0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Motler, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Kevin J. Van Hooser is research professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He also serves on the editorial board of the International Journal of Systematic Theology and the Journal of Theological Interpretation. He's the editor of the award winning Dictionary for Theological Interpretation of the Bible and is the author of several books, including Is There a Meaning in This Text? The Bible, The Reader, and the Morality of Literary Knowledge, The Drama of Doctrine, A Canonical Linguistic Approach to Christian Theology, and Remythologizing Theology Divine Action, Passion, and Authorship. His most recent book is Biblical Authority After Babel retrieving the solas in the spirit of mere Protestant Christianity. Professor Van Hooser, welcome to Thinking in Public. Professor Van Hooser, I have to begin the conversation by asking you uh, the, the one question that seems to pertain to almost every book, but perhaps more so to a book that, uh, that bears the title Biblical Authority After Babel. That's, uh, that's after what? Why this book right now?
1: This book right now, we're on the cusp of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and I've been a little disturbed to hear some people say they'll, they feel like lamenting it rather than celebrating it. And one of the common reasons for that attitude is that they believe that the Reformation opened up a Pandora's box with regard to biblical interpretation. So, after Babel refers to the Babel, the the pluralistic and conflict of biblical interpretations. It's not a slam on the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, everyone knows the Reformers had a high view of Scripture. The question is... Did they inadvertently bequeath interpretive pluralism, even anarchy, upon the world? That's the Babel of my title.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that it would also work in terms of Babel representing modernity, uh, to the extent that much of the conversation in your book is, is, is very current in terms of uh, issues that are particularly acute in the modern age on the the other side of that great divide. But, but as you acknowledge in the early section of your book, this goes right back to direct accusations against the Reformation and the Reformers. And, uh, of course, the historian in me wants to say that that's not at all new. That, and as a matter of fact, you could go right back to the 16th century and uh, at least the apologists, uh, for the Roman Catholic Church were making that very same argument uh, it, both in terms of what they were seeing in the 16th century and about what they that they warned would come in the future
1: exactly and you know it's not as though we haven't tried to rebut that argument but on the other hand uh, history seems to provide some evidence that suggests that maybe there was something in that concern and you're right there are Protestants who have tried to uh, answer those concerns from the start but they seem to be these concerns seem to be uh, particularly pressing at the moment. You know, we're, uh, Brad Gregory has written a book recently, um, suggesting that the reformers were the ones that unleashed secularism and individualism and pluralism upon the world. So I, I feel that these this accusation is particularly acute now. And I've always been one to you know want to stand up for the underdog. And it seems to me the reformers are the underdogs in this conversation. And I wanted to stand up and try to put the best possible face on their achievement.
0: And I know the origin of the book was in a series of lectures given at uh, Moore Theological College in Australia, and uh, I I can imagine that that led to some conversation. But I I think it's important to note that as the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is now looming before us, a lot of the evangelical conversation is going to be, uh, understandably, uh, celebratory, But uh, it's also a time for some self-reflection, especially given the kinds of charges that then and now are made against Protestantism.
1: Yes, uh, the charges and then also the statistics. You know, uh, mainline denominations, these great uh, denominations that have derived from the Protestant uh, confession traditions, uh, they're on the decline. And people are asking the question, well, do we need denominations? What, What is the Church for? And uh, how word-centered should it be? So it is, a, it is a, to one extent, intended to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, but in another sense, I think the book addresses a problem that has been with us for centuries, as you pointed out. What do we do when we disagree about what the Bible means when we're disagreeing with people who have similarly high views of Scripture?
0: You know, that Brad Gregory book uh, deserves close attention. It's, uh, it's, it's intellectually irritating on the one hand uh, because uh, it's uh, – he, he raises a lot of questions that are quite easily answered, but the central accusation in his book – is that uh, the the Reformation set loose anarchy, basically, within the Church, interpretive anarchy, a subversion of all authority. And uh, he introduced into the conversation a phrase that you actually go back to time and again in your book, and that's fissiparious particularity, uh, arguing that the uh, the Reformation caused this, uh, this, this fissure uh, uh, in the Church, or uh, uh, an entire set of fissures that continue.
1: Right. The idea is, that his idea was that it's not enough to say the Bible is the supreme authority if you don't also say who has the authority to say what it means. So in the Roman Catholic Church, they had that authority, the magisterium uh, personalized or personified in the figure of the Pope. And uh, I first came across this objection when I was doing mission work in France, and someone accused me when they found out I was a Protestant of being an anarchist, that is, someone who didn't have a head or a figure in authority who could tell me which of the many biblical interpretations was the right one?
0: You know, one of the interesting first observations I have about that is that it it ignores two huge problems. One of them is the existence of radical theological pluralism within the Roman Catholic Church that does have a magisterium and uh, and does have a papacy. And, And then the fact that even though many Roman Catholics don't point to this explicitly, in Vatican II, there is a continuing affirmation of a two-source understanding of revelation, both uh, both the Scripture and the Church. It, it goes beyond mere magisterial interpretation of the Scripture uh, to uh, an ongoing revelation through an unfolding tradition.
1: Well, I think that's right. I think that's right. There was plurality in the Church before the Reformation. And at one point, there was even more than one person claiming to be the Pope, you know. So it's not as though the Roman Catholics escaped the problem of, the, of how to locate authority. Um, I think the Reformers were aware of this. We, we need to give them credit. And I was pleasantly surprised to find out not only had they anticipated the objection, but they had already begun to take some concrete steps to deal with it. For example, both Luther and Calvin were supportive of church councils, provided that they were truly Catholic, that is, representative, and not narrowly Catholic, that is, Roman. So one of the things I argue in the book is that, um, really, that the best Catholics are the Protestant Catholics, those who really want to have a church council that uh, are local churches.
0: You know, as a matter of fact, and and to your credit, you point to this in the book, the, the magisterial reformers insisted that it was they who were actually more Catholic than the Church that called itself Catholic.
1: Yes, indeed, and as uh, I, I was, again, pleasantly surprised to discover that uh, Luther was calling for a Church council that would be truly Catholic, that is, general and comprehensive and representative. And not only did they call for councils in the Roman Catholic Church, but in their own confessional traditions, uh, both the Lutheran and the Reformed, Uh, Practice what they preached, uh, particularly in Calvin's Geneva. He instituted a practice where local pastors would get together and have informal councils where they would wrestle with biblical passages, listen to one another, and together try on a unified meaning.
0: You know, another thought that comes to me in terms of the Reformers and tradition is the fact that many people simply use uh, well, simplistic explanations that don't fit the case. To read Calvin and Luther, for example, is to read two men who understood themselves to be representing a, a faith that goes all the way back to the apostles and was affirmed by, uh, for instance, uh, Augustine, whom uh, Luther called the blessed doctor. Uh, Calvin quotes him over and over again. Uh, Second to Augustine, Calvin quotes Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, uh, obviously in ways in which he he seeks to find agreement. And when it comes to the councils, as you indicated, both Calvin and Luther and their heirs wanted to claim those early ecumenical councils as, as representing statements made by the true Church, of which they were very much a part.
1: That's exactly right. So I think one of the things I'm hoping to do in my book, and others are doing this as well, but we're simply challenging the correct, the caricature that Protestants uh, believe in individual autonomy and have no role whatsoever for church tradition. Uh, the Reformers themselves, as you point out, were very concerned to show that they were in line with uh, the broad church tradition. And yes, Augustine was the hero both for Luther and Calvin on many, many points. Sometimes Calvin says, I could spell this all out, but Augustine has done it so well, I don't need to.
0: That's right. You you know, in terms of thinking this through also in in the solas, and uh, the subtitle of your book is Retrieving the Solas in the Spirit of Mere Protestant Christianity. We'll we'll take that entire subtitle apart in just a moment. But uh, about the solas, uh, you you make a brief reference to this, but uh, I I would argue that the Reformers of the 16th century— Clearly articulated and taught all that we now refer to as the as the solas, but the actual formulas were not collected until well, just about a century ago. And yep. uh, and so what we're retrieving is is what they taught, and uh, and what we now summarize in terms of of those five very important solas.
1: I, I think that's right. Uh, I couldn't find all five solas mentioned by the Reformers. I found three of the solas, grace, faith, and Scripture, clearly enunciated. But I do think you're right. The other two correctly summarize insights that we can document very easily that were very much of the Reformers' concerns. In Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, those are clearly uppermost in the Reformers' minds.
0: You know, in reading your book, especially as you outline uh, the the different solas, one key question nonetheless comes to my mind, and that is, would the Reformers recognize the solas as you describe them here? I'm not, I'm not asking would they disagree, but would they recognize, uh, and, and would the historic Reformation churches recognize the solas in the way you, you expound upon them here?
1: Well, I do say I'm retrieving, and that means that I'm doing more than simply trying to be faithful to the past. I'm also looking to the past, but I'm looking forward, I'm looking at the present, I'm looking at future uh, challenges and so on, my hope would be that they would recognize it, given the context we're facing today, because I do see myself uh, quite a bit of continuity uh, between what I'm arguing and what the reformers are arguing. But you're right, I'm in a different context, and uh, in a sense we we won't know, at least not for a while, (laughs) whether they would agree with me or not.
0: Well, I entirely agree, for instance, with the Trinitarian affirmations you make uh, under the rubric of of sola gratia, of of grace alone. But uh, it it strikes me that as much as I I think that was a brilliant uh, presentation of uh, of Trinitarian truth, it it wasn't exactly what the Reformers were understood to have meant uh, by grace alone.
1: Uh, Well, let's put it this way. Um, I'm, I'm going deeper into their insight. Their insight was that grace indicates the priority of God's presence and activity to anything we can do with regard to our salvation. God has acted. He's taken the initiative. He was merciful. He did it freely for our benefit. Uh, What I'm suggesting is if we think about grace, it ultimately leads us back to the God who is gracious, the one who is willing to go out of himself for another. And the way he does that is by the missions of the Word and the Spirit. And so if you think about grace enough and deeply, I yeah. do think we, we find the, the, the Trinity at the root.
0: You know, an interesting question that came to my mind in reading that chapter was, was the question as to the extent of any ontological questions on the part of, uh, for instance, Calvin and Luther. There are certainly arguments that at ontological consequences, but uh, I think it's interesting that's, in some sense, a pretty modern question in terms of contemporary theology.
1: Um, I I suppose if we put it that way, that is, I mean, you're right, the Reformers were first and foremost interested in the works of God for our salvation, the benefits of Christ's work. They didn't want to get too tied up in speculation. On the other hand, I think one of the reasons for that is that one of the things they had inherited from the early Church was a very robust ontology. Uh, And so they didn't feel the need to explore it. I don't think they wanted to get into the philosophical side of it, but there was a very strong tradition, you know, that God is the one who is, that his essence is his existence. And I think to some extent, the Reformers simply took that on board, and since no one was questioning it, there was really no need to go into it very deeply.
0: Yeah, that's actually my point entirely, that uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers would have had no basic ontological disagreement there. Right. Uh, But, That takes us to the next question, and uh, that's the relationship between uh, uh, nature and grace. And at that point, there is a very key distinction. And of course, I I think many contemporary evangelicals don't trace that out into what that means in terms of uh, epistemological authority. And, uh, you know, frankly, we hear that coming from different sources today, but uh, certainly in terms of uh, of nature and grace. I think it's important to recognize, and, and, and you brilliantly lay this out, that uh, eventually it comes down to where divine revelation is understood to uh, to be found in its authoritative form for the believing Church.
1: Yes. Um, and it's ironic also that uh, one of the criticisms the Reformers get is that they secularize the world by somehow, you know, removing the idea that creation was already great, the kind of sacramental understanding of, of nature. But in fact, that that view that nature had something to offer and that we could somehow arrive at knowledge of God through our natural processes alone, that view associated with the Roman Catholic view, I think, is probably more likely to have led to the secularism than the Reformers' emphasis, that absolutely, actually, yeah, God has to regenerate our natures, God has to illumine our minds, and God has to take the initiative and make Himself known through His Word for us to know anything about Him, especially salvifically.
0: You know, in terms of, uh, of Scripture alone, sola scriptura, and uh, you, you want to clarify what the Reformers meant, and, uh, and you do so by having already discussed the issue of tradition and... Uh, And how the Reformers understood themselves in terms of receiving Scripture and not being the first to read it. But just in a summary, how would you state, uh, as you do in your book, what the Reformers would have meant by sola scriptura?
1: Well, I think what the Reformers meant is that at the end of the day, the only supreme source and norm for Christian theology, for speaking rightly about God, for understanding the gospel, the supreme authority is scripture. That doesn't mean it was the only authority, because tradition has a role in helping us understand what the biblical authors were saying, but the the locus, the final locus of authority has to be uh, with God's Word written. And the Reformers wanted to emphasize that, because at the time of the Reformation, certain human traditions, uh, Roman Catholic doctrines, were cloaking themselves with the authority of, of God himself. And so, Sola Scriptura, in the context of the Reformers, was a sharp reminder, a corrective, that supreme authority is God's alone.
0: You know, I often, in speaking of the Reformers, uh, re- remind that uh, the Reformers said uh, Sola Scriptura, not Scriptura Nuda. They, they, they weren't claiming that Scripture was read naked, as if, uh, as if we had no other source of knowledge. It was rather that it is Scripture that adjudicates and norms, or, or to use uh, my favorite phrase from Luther, which is that the Scripture is norma normans non-normata, the norm of norm that can't be normed. And uh, if it's the norm of norms, that means there are other structures of thought, and uh, you could call tradition one uh, among them, that clearly does come into play. The question is, which has the last word?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so one of the things I was assuming that needed to be stressed is that Sola Scriptura doesn't simply name a principle of authority as if there were only one authoritative principle. There is, but that's the that's the triune God and, and God's, what I call his communicative action, that is his making himself known in Christ and in Scripture. Uh, but Sola Scriptura it also, I think it's better understood not as a principle, but as a statement of a pattern of authority. So as you were just saying, yes, it's the only norm without a norm. It has the supreme place in the pattern of authority, but in his wisdom, God has given us what I call ministerial authorities, secondary authorities, helps even, that guide us into the meaning of Scripture.
0: Uh, A part of the fun and profit of reading a book like this is that you get to watch another reader at work. And uh, as much as you've written the book, you uh, you were obviously... Uh, and for your entire lifetime, deeply immersed in this literature. So I, I enjoyed the people to whom you made reference uh, in terms of these arguments. And, and showing up on the same page, I often think about the fact that, you know, it takes one author to put two people who otherwise would never be on the same page. So Anthony Lane and Stanley Hauerwas uh, in your book, uh, showing up together. And Stan Hauerwas makes the famous argument, or infamous, that, uh, that sola scriptura is what he calls the sin of the Reformation. Now, why would he say that?
1: Well, from his perspective, and I think he's one of the ones who's bought into the prevailing narrative about the Reformation being a Pandora's box that opens up all sorts of interpretations. From his perspective, what he's complaining about is, is giving individuals the right to read the Bible without also encouraging them at the same time to be part of the discipline of the Church. That is, he's, he doesn't simply want to hand over the Bible to undisciplined readers who will use their autonomy to perhaps find things that are in their own interest, um, so I, I I have some sympathy for what he's saying, but I cannot go as far as what he says and speak about the sin of sola scriptura. This is one of the great uh, glories of the Reformation: is that the reformers wanted everybody, lay people, that is, to have Bibles they could read in their own language, because. It's a responsibility, yes, but it's also a wonderful privilege to read God's Word for oneself.
0: You know, a couple of thoughts about that. I've had this same conversation with Stanley Hauerwas, indeed, on this program, and uh, he is a provocateur. He intends to be that way. He enjoys playing that role, and, and let's face it, he plays it extremely well. Yes. But uh, he's also on to a problem that uh, that I would acknowledge. If you're looking for horrible examples of uh, this uh, fissiparious particularity, to go, to go back to uh, Brad Gregory... You can certainly find them, and, uh, and you don't have to have uh, uh, much uh, ability on the Internet or just with a television remote control to find plenty of evidence of the, of all kinds of problems with the way that some people handle the text. The problem you know, is that that he doesn't actually take us, in terms of his own proposal, to anything other than kind of a postmodern uh, communitarianism.
1: Right. Right. Um, You're right, we do have too many examples of this. Uh, I teach a course called The Use of Scripture in Theology, and I think sometimes we are so intent on getting our doctrine of Scripture right, and of course that's important, that we're not as clear about the right practice that follows from it. And if we're to rightly handle the word of truth, then we need to know how to use it, not simply what it is. Again, I think the Reformers are wonderful exemplars in right use. They took care to study Scripture in the original languages. They were after the literal sense. They were very concerned not to simply foist their own ideas onto the Bible. It's the famous image of the nose of wax. If you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, then it has no authority of its own. You can simply twist it and wrap it around your little finger. And because sinners are, by nature, idolaters who would like to, have God say so for themselves, uh, it's very tempting to use God's Word to, you know, to foist one's own agenda upon people. So I think the Reformers were very aware of their responsibility. The Word is authoritative, not our interpretation.
0: I think Tony Lane's statement that it shows up in your book on the same page, with that quotation from Stan Hauerwas, is really helpful here, and uh, where he says that sola scriptura is the statement that the church can err—that's uh, that's incredible clarity.
1: It is very clear, and I think it's a statement of fact, isn't it? The church can and has erred in the past, and um, again, the reformers were aware of this. And I think this is one reason, again, why they thought it was so important to be in continuity with tradition. Sometimes there really is safety in numbers especially if the numbers are the cloud of witnesses who have affirmed orthodoxy.
0: Taken at face value, this conversation would be worthwhile simply because it's with Professor Kevin Van Hooser and about a book, the title of which is Biblical Authority After Babel. These days, I think most evangelicals, at least thoughtful evangelicals, feel just about every word of that title as a word of consequence. Once in a while, in reading a book, you have the impression you've walked into an intramural debate, and uh, I, I found particular pleasure in uh, in finding that in your book as well. Uh, when you discuss the relative merits of systematic and biblical theology, I think that's an ongoing conversation, but, uh, but it plays into uh, the, your understanding of how Scripture functions in the Church.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um... It is true that uh, biblical scholars and systematic theologians sometimes view things differently. It's been important to me over the years to to make sure that this is not a, a relationship between competitors. I think for those of us involved in seminary education, it's very important to show that we're all interested in reading Scripture to hear the Word of God for the Church yesterday and today. That seems to me to be a worthy enterprise that requires collaboration, and so I don't, I don't like it when someone says, you know, I'm closer to God's Word than you are. I, I don't think we need to have to have that uh, competition. We're all, I hope, servants of the Word, and together our labors are to minister that Word to students who can then go and do likewise.
0: And there's a role for both biblical and systematic theology, and it's not that one is somehow an abstraction and uh, i say that myself to defend systematic theology you can right. have really poor you can have a poor system you can have a system that uh, that that uh, both uh, represents faulty theological foundations and, and can horribly distort the teaching of scripture on the other hand the most self-declared biblical theologian in terms of doing biblical theology still can only do that task with systematic categories
1: yes it's very humbling not only the church can err but so can biblical scholars and so can systematic Indeed. theologians uh, very humbling. Again, that's why it's a collaborative enterprise, and I think, again, the Reformers knew this. Um, we can err, and we can also err in, in becoming too proud of our own interpretation. So I think one of the hardest things for students to get right is this balance between confidence, but not to the point of becoming complacent when it comes to handling God's Word
0: words matter, you argue for three words that should be taken together as kind of the essence of your argument here. Those three words are mere Protestant Christianity. Um, Why those three? Why are all three necessary?
1: Well, Christianity, because we're focused on Jesus Christ and the gospel. Um, That's what it's all about, The, the good news that in Christ, God is restoring creation and making eternal life possible in and through him. So that's Christianity. There's no other hope for the world. Um, Protestant, because I think what happened at the Reformation was a recovery of that gospel and of the principle of the authority of Scripture in uh, specifying what that gospel is. We, we, if we, it's great to have good news, but we need a reliable source. Scripture is that uh, source, and the Protestants recovered that. That's what sola Scriptura signals for us. But the mirror, the mirror is the surprise, the mirror Protestant. And I think there I have in mind a kind of Catholicity. That is, I, I do want to emphasize what Protestants have in common. So often we hear about the differences uh, and the divisions, and people point to the divisions between Protestant church traditions as a reason not to become Protestant. And so when they do that, they overlook the fact that actually Protestants can affirm much together, and there is quite a bit of unity. So the mereness is an an attempt on my part to uh, correct the caricature where Protestants are divided over everything and to say that, in fact, the Reformers were united in the essentials.
0: And I think it's important to continue this conversation along these lines, because I think to many evangelicals, it's the word Protestant that might be the the one that requires the greatest explanation. I, I think it's an essential word. Um, and I, I agree, by the way, with David Wells in, in the title of his book, The Courage to be Protestant. I think that's one of the most important issues of theological courage in our day. But but for you, Protestant takes on a particular meaning, and uh, I, I'd like for you to flesh that out a bit.
1: Sure. Well, uh, obviously, historically, it has to do with the Reformation and the fact that uh, at the time of the Reformation, there were people like Luther who stood up and actually called the Church to be Reformed, that is, to reform itself according to the Word of God. And that, to me, is one of the main uh, characteristics of Protestantism, this, this awareness that the Church must always be willing to reform its life and thought, and that means theology, in light of the Word of God. So that's, that's one of the things I mean by it. The other uh, connotation it has is that it's referring to uh, not just one insight, but, but uh, the insight of all the Reformers, that is, there were different confessional traditions. We call them all Protestant. They all arose at about the same time, and yet they each had slightly different uh, uh, emphases. So Luther's, of course, was justification by faith, and that, that that emphasis on gospel rather than law still characterizes the Lutheran confession. Now, similarly, uh, Calvin had emphases of his own. We summarize it with the TULIP acronym. I don't think that's necessarily the best way to do it, but all that to say is that there were distinctive insights. And... Uh, so it is with John Wesley and uh, Zwingli and other Protestants. Each of these Protestant reformers had a gift, I think, to bring to the whole church, and yet each did so clearly under the supreme authority of Scripture.
0: But that leads me to two questions that I could not answer from uh, from reading your book about your thesis here. So let me just direct them to you. Okay. Uh, the the first of them has to do with this. I I, I agree. With your definition of mere Protestant Christianity. And uh, the, the question I have, though, is where does that then leave us now vis-a-vis the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church? Wh- wh- where, where do we stand now? Are we in a different position than were the Reformers in the 16th century, or, uh, or are we essentially in the same position?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I've been involved for several years with the Evangelicals and Catholics Together Dialogue And I have been pleasantly surprised to see how what I thought were intractable doctrinal differences in some cases were differences only in emphasis. I'm thinking of the relationship of Scripture and tradition even. Now, I know you mentioned that in Vatican II there's still that line about tradition being a second form of the Word of God. But at least in the dialogues I was part of, the supremacy of Scripture uh, did seem to come through. So I I was surprised, pleasantly surprised about that. On the other hand, with regard to ecclesiology and the Lord's Supper and other things like that, and I suppose including the whole papal setup, the magisterium, there are still differences. And um, the Church is not united on these points. And I think the Protestants are in the right. I still think that Roman Catholicism is something of a misnomer insofar as, well, the Roman makes it uh, unduly narrow. I think Protestants are more genuine gospel Catholics, and the Roman Catholics insist you have to belong to their church in order to share the Lord's Supper with them. Uh, In my mind, that is still an area of division. We're excluded from that fellowship because, as Protestants, we're not allowed to share uh, the uh, Lord's Supper with them. And of course, they have a different understanding of what it represents as well. So, there are still real differences. I think the Reformation has to go on. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that the differences are uh, over the over the substance of the gospel.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that that's uh, that that's one of those interesting questions. I, I was a part of some of those early uh, conversations with evangelicals and Roman Catholics uh, that uh, that eventuated in what became ECT. And uh, there's been a Southern Baptist uh, Roman Catholic dialogue uh, or, or conversation, I think is the better word, has been going on for some time and, uh, and and was formalized for a period. I also did graduate work in a Roman Catholic institution on Roman Catholic theological method. And and the one thing that strikes me is that uh, the Roman Catholic Church has the incredible ability to sound far more uh, consistent with the Reformation than it ever intends to be in practice. and uh, And so you know, both Protestants and Catholics have a certain reflex. And, uh, and, and eventually, though, it gets back to the magisterial authority of the Church, and all of those statements remain absolutely in force. And I, I, I think many evangelicals assume that Vatican II somehow moved the Roman Catholic Church into a closer alignment with, uh, with Protestant uh, understandings. I think the argument can be made if you read it. It did exactly the opposite.
1: Uh, Well, with regard to ecclesiology, I think I would agree with you. Um, So that's why I say the differences remain. Um, You know, I can only go so far. I can't recognize the structure of authority of that Church. I can't fellowship at the table with those who profess Christ. Uh, And that's just some of the differences. There are doctrinal disagreements as well, such as, um, you know, uh, the assumption of Mary, papal infallibility dogmas now that, that in my mind, uh, lack sufficient biblical support.
0: And and that that leads to the second question I could not answer, and I've really been looking forward to this conversation in so many ways. But when you uh, then—let's just take the Protestant world or or universe unto itself—and you have a a really careful argument laid out concerning what you call the royal priesthood of believers and I think you clarify it very well in terms of, uh, of of the keys and and the authority that is given to the church. But when it comes to the Lord's table and your definition of mere Protestant Christianity, I, I guess this is where I just have to ask the question straightforwardly: How mere uh, can mere be here?
1: Uh, um, well, again, I'm not in a position to legislate for everyone what this word must mean. What I what I was trying to articulate is something along the lines of C. S. Lewis, who took it from Richard Baxter, which has to do with the things all Christians confess together on the essentials. Um, now, with regard to the Lord's Supper, the excellent question. As you know, the Reformers, this is the this is the doctrine they disagreed about amongst themselves. In the book I trace. Uh, the early attempts to, for, that the Reformers made to get over those disagreements, and they really did come close uh, at Marburg, for example, and later on there's, they produced a, at Wittgenberg a common confession. They really did try to come close, and it, at some point the language was just a preposition away you know, from achieving uh, consensus. I think at the end of his life, Luther uh, did seem to patch things up to some extent with uh, Zwingli, at least for a while. Um, I, I don't know that we need to buy into any one formula. It seems to me that even if we disagree with one another of the, about the nature of Christ's presence in the elements, we still can recognize one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think the Reformers got to that point. And I, I think we need to uh, affirm that.
0: No, certainly. And the question is how we affirm that. So, for instance, there's been an historic Reformed conversation about the distinction between a true church and a false church and a wrongly ordered or a disordered church. Do you, do you follow that basic—in uh, the, the, other words, do, do you also affirm that there are churches that, are, that truly preach the gospel, and yet they are, they are disordered in some way?
1: I didn't use that the, those terms, but I think they're serviceable. I think they describe what I would probably have to say if I were to tease this out, yes. I think, though, that wrong order, you know, wrongly ordered, I, I would want to say that it doesn't affect the, the fact, as you mentioned, that the Church can give a legitimate gospel witness. Um, and uh, I'm a, I'm a, I guess as a systematic theologian, I'm a little less, Uh, sure of myself when it comes to church order, uh, simply because what Scripture says about polity seems, in some instances, to be somewhat restrained. And so I I wouldn't want to emphasize those questions as much as I do first-order items of doctrine. But I agree with you, uh, for practical purposes, we have to do it. And in the book, I call matters of church policy housekeeping. And every church has to order its house. You're right.
0: You know, in terms of denominationalism, it, it, it's simply in the American experiment uh, that this is our version of the uh, the fissipariousness that many accuse the Reformers of creating kind of a uh, – well, going back to the charge made against you as an anarchist that uh, – well, I, I, I like the way Winthrop Hudson put it, the American church historian who said that uh, taken to its logical conclusion, this means that there's a church under every man's hat. Sure. Um and and yet, as much as we can lament that you, you you cite the statistic that there's something like in the Handbook of Denominations, thirty eight thousand Protestant denominations, or at least non Catholic denominations of one sort or another, and and yet what you're arguing for in your book is that there is a basic theological consensual unity that is real that that goes beyond uh, at least an awful lot of these labels or organizational charts.
1: It is real, and the world knows it, I think, uh, as evangelicalism. Uh, Timothy George sees evangelicals as a renewal movement that cuts across various denominations, but uh, going back to the heart of the Gospel Confession, trying to recover that, uh, the message of justification by faith, the centrality of Scripture, people with that evangelical sensibility exist in many of those 38,000 denominations. Uh, So uh, I know it seems counterintuitive, because people think, oh, if Protestants are divided, how much more are evangelicals? But in fact, I think that um, evangelicalism is one way of expressing what I mean by mere Protestant Christianity.
0: I'm really enjoying reading uh, Richard Evans' new volume. just came out uh, in the last few days in the Penguin history of Europe, and uh, he's dealing with uh, the long 19th century. One of the things that he includes in his book is a, is a map of Europe in 1815 that, uh, that lays out Europe by religion. And uh, you look at that, and you recognize just how uh, territorial many of these Reformation churches were. And, of course, you've got to add to that the Ottoman Empire and the Roman Catholic kingdoms and all the rest. It, it'd be hard to come up with a map like that. But it draws my attention to what Sidney Mead argued years ago. And, uh, and that is about why American Christianity, and, and or for that matter, uh, English-speaking Christianity, has taken on such a, a denominational form. And, and Sidney me just responded that denominationalism is what results when you have strong beliefs and religious liberty. And uh, I think that's really profound. I think many people who would point to the existence of denominations as the problem don't recognize that to solve that problem... Uh, you're going to have to either minimize theology or you're going to have to bring about some form of coercion. Uh, uh, you're going to have to go back to that map that we, we saw of of Europe in 1815. And uh, and you don't condemn denominations. I appreciate that. I think it's a, it's a straightforward acknowledgment, uh, even though you use different categories, that uh, when you do have strong beliefs and you do have religious liberty, then you're going to have denominations or something similar to them.
1: Right, Uh, and I don't want to go back to a kind of coercive picture of Christendom, where everybody is born into, you know, a one-state, one-religion setup. Yes, I do affirm denominations. I also distinguish what I call weak, radical, and strong denominationalism. And the weak denominationalism is when a church exists and it's different, but it can't even explain why it's important to uh, adhere to its distinctives. Uh, So that that one will probably fade away. On the other hand, uh, radical denominationalism is a kind of ideology that people get so wrapped up in the particular history and institutional structure of a denomination that they lose sight of what the denomination is actually for, which is the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, And then what I call strong denominationalism, churches that belong to this strong denominational uh, type understand that they have distinctives, they appreciate their distinctives, they, they think they're important, but they offer them up not as blunt instruments with which to uh, bludgeon other churches, but really as gifts. This is my insight, as it were. This is our insight that we have to give to the Church universal. And um, so I'm, I'm in favor of that kind of strong denominationalism.
0: Do you see many examples of that kind of radical denominationalism on the map today? I mean, I can go back certainly to the uh, the 19th century and find that here in the U.S. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, 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 there was a, a, a book published uh, by the Southern Baptist Convention's publishing house back at the end of the 19th century, and the individual chapters were chapters like Baptist and why not Presbyterian, Baptist and why not Episcopalian, Baptist and why not Lutheran, um, I, I, I just, I don't see many evidences of that kind of uh, of, of a radical denominationalism these days.
1: Well, uh, I don't want to mention the particular denomination, but I've talked with a couple of pastors who belong to this denomination, and and they say that their ministry at the local church level is frustrated by the denomination because of the institutional apparatus and having to adhere to policy and so on. I think it's, it's radical when the denomination gets in the way of local church ministry.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question, because I see that amongst uh, uh, some younger ministers, the, uh, the, the, the failure to understand that what the denomination funds, the denomination intends to be denominational. So it's, it's a very interesting pattern. And, and you mentioned the decline of mainline denominationalism. And by the way, I, I certainly affirm your strong denominational model. Um, but it reminds me of, of your treatment of the word sectarian in the book, too, because no one wants to be called sectarian. Um, and uh, and yet, I, I, I wanted to suggest that what's missing in terms of that section in your book is the understanding that we're all going to be more sectarian in the sociological sense, that, that, uh, that, that as, as Weber and others would say, uh, to be sectarian is to be set off increasingly at odds with the dominant society, which is what the mainline Protestant denominations tried to avoid. Uh, right. I don't think there's any way for us to avoid it.
1: Uh, sure, I think we'll probably look like sex when it comes along, when, you know, when we're compared to the society at large, yes. The, the way that I think the Church and the Fourth Gospel you know, appears sectarian, it's a, it's, there's the community of darkness and there's a community of light. I think what I had in mind in my section in the book was that the Reformers themselves didn't think of themselves as sectarian because they thought of themselves as belonging to the the Catholic Church small c you know
0: absolutely and 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 they had every reason to expect that where the reformation would survive it would survive uh, as a dominant cultural force. That was it was no less true in Geneva than uh, the, than, than in uh, in Luther's uh, region of Germany there, where it was a princely Reformation. We just I, find ourselves in an entirely different position. And I, I think, as evangelicals, we find ourselves in a different context than we knew ourselves to be 10 years ago.
1: Well, uh, I agree with you, and, and, and in the United States in particular, it doesn't seem as though the culture is supporting, you know, uh, denominations or the Christian Church anymore. So you're right. It may be that in the future, Protestant Christianity will appear to be more sect-like. We just won't have the cultural and social support systems we've had in the past.
0: What was the happiest discovery that, uh, that you found in the research and in the writing of this book? What, uh, what, what, what perhaps brought you greatest pleasure?
1: Uh, I think what brought me greatest pleasure was that I think I did find an answer to what Christian Smith calls the pervasive interpretive pluralism of our Protestant time. And I think I found in the Reformers and in the Reformation what I refer to in the book as a unitive interpretive plurality. So the emphasis is on unity, not uh, an unchecked kind of pluralization. So I think I was most pleasantly surprised to find that I didn't have to invent the solution. It was already there, at least at least uh, in seminal form.
0: Professor Van Hooser, thank you for the book, and uh, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. It's been a pleasure. really enjoyed that conversation with Professor Van Hooser. I really appreciated his book, and I appreciated it at several levels. First of all, in terms of the fact that it genuinely does deliver on the promise of the title. It's a very serious consideration of biblical authority after Babel. The first Babel being the accusations made against the Reformers and the Reformation, and the second, the unique questions that are now pressed upon us by the modern age. Professor Van Hooser honestly says that his attempt here is something like retrieval, and in the context of 20th century theology, that has a particular meaning. It goes back to a movement in Catholic theology in which there was an effort, especially before and after Vatican II, to try to go back and to retrieve the faith of the church and then to live it out and to project it into the present and the future. That, in a Protestant sense, is what Kevin Van Hooser has done in his attempt to try to retrieve the solas. I have one concern about that, and that concern simply comes down to this. I think as brilliant as Professor Van Hooser's presentation of his points and and concerns are in this book, the solas, as articulated here, are not historically the same as the solas that became the central formula of the Reformation. Now, that's an interesting point in terms of this retrieval. The retrieval is Professor Van Hooser's effort to try to take those solas both backward and forward. And I think he's actually quite successful in this effort in an attempt to go back to the central themes and concepts and affirmations of the Reformers, and then to bring that forward into a faithful evangelicalism, a faithful mere Protestant Christianity, as he calls it, looking towards the future. I think there is loss on the one hand, however, by failing to lay out what the Reformers and their heirs meant by these solas, because as we are looking at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, it seems to me that that is the first and most prime task. But as we're looking at this book, Biblical Authority After Babel, so much of it is a brilliant presentation of issues that are genuinely historical and genuinely current. And on this score, there are few who have the ability of Professor Kevin Van Hooser to deal in both of these simultaneously. I think he pulls that off very well. Furthermore, as an author and as a theologian, Professor Van Hooser has to know he is here engaged in some of the most controversial territory, of all of church history. You're talking here about the Reformation of the 16th century. The accusations that were made then and now against the Reformers and their heirs get to the very heart not only of what it means to be Protestant, but what it means to be Christian and what it means for the church to be genuinely Christ's church. I think the great strength of this book and of Professor Van Hooser's approach is that he argues against the criticisms of the Reformers, and he argues quite substantially and I think quite successfully that there is a genuine doctrinal consensus and that there is a genuine spiritual and theological unity wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and wherever the faith once for all delivered to the saints is affirmed. I have written and advocated long for what I call a process of theological triage, for a hierarchy of theological doctrines and truths. And in his own way, following a very similar scheme, Professor Van Hooser asserts and affirms the same in this book. But that raises the crucial question of how we make some of the hardest judgments, yet necessary judgments, about how we recognize a church to be a genuine church, that is, to be authentically a representation, a part of Christ's church, that church of which Christ said the gates of hell, Shall not prevail. On this score, I think Professor Van Hooser is more successful at arguing for and explaining that basic theological unity that exists among Protestants than he is at helping us to understand how we then are to see the Roman Catholic Church or even other groups that are outside what we would define rightfully as Protestant Christianity, but would still claim some purchase upon the Christian faith and existence as a Christian church. One task of any author in any book is to start a conversation and then to at least go a long way in terms of contributing to that conversation. And I think the greatest strength of this book is the fact that Professor Van Hooser is really on to some of the most crucial issues that evangelical Protestants must face in the 21st century, and he does take us a very long way in terms of both an historical and a contemporary consideration of these issues. There are few figures who are more conversant in terms of modern thought across a variety of disciplines than Professor Kevin Van Hooser. But in reading any book like this, we also have to ask the question of where this book now takes us in the conversation. And I think it's now an urgent responsibility, not just because the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is looming before us, but because the issues of the Reformation in the 16th century are still the issues faced by evangelical Protestants today. I think in many ways, the most interesting part of the conversation for me was in my asking Professor Van Hooser just how mere a mere Protestant Christianity can be. The collapse of mainline Protestantism indicates that a mere theology leads to a major disaster. I also understand that in using the word mere here, Professor Van Hooser is intentionally echoing C.S. Lewis and through Lewis Richard Baxter. But I think it's really, really important for us to recognize that no mere affirmation of Protestantism is going to suffice for the 21st century. No mere retrieval of even the solas will suffice. What's going to be required is the courage and the conviction that was found in the Reformers themselves and, of course, in their heirs, wherever they authentically and faithfully have been found. Professor Van Hooser is not calling for a minimal theological definition. That's clear in his book, and it's clear in his other writings as well. The question for all of us and the conversation that must continue is just how mere, however, any doctrinal affirmation can be, any ecclesiology can be, any affirmation of the solas of the Reformation can be, and the church not end up being merely evangelical. There must be no apology for evangelical Protestants in this generation to assert a full-bodied, full-blooded, full-calorie Protestantism. Without what David Wells calls the courage to be Protestant, there will be no Protestants, and there will be no Protestantism. Continuing the conversation about what just that means and what it demands of us is the responsibility now for this generation of evangelical Protestants. Many thanks to my guest, Professor Kevin Van Hooser, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.